All right. So the page that you have in front of you has two sides to it, and it is an excerpt from a lecture series that was done at Detroit Baptist Seminary uh, last, yeah, last year in 2018. And the name of the lecture was The Kingdom Covenants of Scripture, uh, Dr. Roy Beecham from Central Baptist Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota, uh, presented the lecture series. He had three sessions, the covenants in antiquity, the covenants in Israel, and the new covenant. And first of all, the covenants in antiquity has to do with what did covenants look like in the ancient Near East. So we're just going to go over a few of those things. It's not in the sheet that I gave you. We're just going to go over a few of those things for a couple of reasons. One, because it helps us understand Genesis 12 better, which is sort of foundational to a lot of what we're going to be looking at as we get into, for example, Genesis 15 and some of these other passages that deal with Abraham and God's interactions with Abraham, the promises God made to Abraham. Secondly, it helps us in the context of evaluating our church covenant to, again, highlight the differences between the covenants of Scripture, and the kinds of promises that we would be making toward one another in a church covenant or a set of church commitments, something along those lines. We've talked about this a little bit already. We went through our church covenant, highlighted some areas that were good, highlighted some areas that would be helpful to think through more. But before we move into thinking about what other churches have put as their church covenants, and thinking about maybe some better wording for ours, uh, I think it would be helpful for us to pause and look at this this morning. So, what did covenants look like in the ancient Near East? They were legal instruments, and um, when we hear something like legal instruments, that's not the way that we normally talk. But, uh, if you ever make a will or a trust, or those sorts of things, there's a lot of legal language involved in those sets of instructions, sets of agreements. And so that would probably be the closest parallel in our day to what we're going to look at this morning. Two core things that were true of covenants in ancient times. They had a relationship said, here's the first person, the second person, what's the relationship between them? And then there was obligation. What things did the first person or the second person have to do in light of the relationship? Covenants are distinct from informal agreements, blessings, prophecies, promises, etc. So, that point that I just read is important to keep in mind because when we have something like God says uh, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but adulterers God will judge that is a statement of God's action it is not a covenant that's a quote from Hebrews 13 uh, when God says I will never leave you or forsake you again that's not a covenant, even though it is a promise. And so it's important to see the differences between those two things. Uh, some covenant terminology. 
Hebrew uses the phrase to cut a covenant. That'll become important when we come to Genesis 15. Uh, Akkadian, very similar. The basic concept is to legalize a formal agreement. There were two categories that um, required the loyalty of a vassal. So you had the superior, you had the person in charge, and then you had the vassal, the one that was serving them, the one that was inferior in that relationship. These were largely law with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. You had suzerainty treaties, responsibilities of a nation to a king, and you had fealty or loyalty oaths, responsibilities of a vassal individual to his lord, his master, the king. Secondly, you had agreements that rewarded loyalty of the vassal. And that focused on the obligation of the superior, the king, the ruler, in the relationship. So, for example, you had a royal grant that awarded favors to a faithful servant and often to his descendants. Often, you'll read in a lot of literature that talks about this, this idea of conditional versus unconditional. How many of you have heard that language to describe covenants, conditional or unconditional? Okay. What's the problem with saying that a covenant is unconditional? Or what could be confusing about it? There's no boundaries, or it's sort of like the superior, in this case God, says he's going to do something for people, and they can do whatever they want, and God will still do all the things he promised, right? And that doesn't fit the sort of the biblical model. So it's better to see it in these terms. Bilateral, two people are both making agreements. Instead of unilateral, one is granting something to the other. Both of them have sets of obligations that are included. What are things that go alongside covenants? Some of the symbolic elements include a sacrifice, a meal, or a token. Um, if we think about, as we come to Genesis 15, God sacrifices some animals. There's this idea of fellowship with Abraham. And then there's a token or a mark of what following the covenant means. And in Abraham's case, it's a covenant of circumcision. We'll talk more about that when we get to Genesis 15, uh, I believe next Sunday. Secondly, there's the juridical or the legal aspects. There is an oath. That's what sets the covenant in motion. And that is an essential aspect of it. All right, any questions on that first part? There's a lot of technical stuff, but I think it's helpful background for us as we think through these things. And I'll link this on the Facebook page, so those of you who want to go look at it some more. There's also the lectures were recorded. It's uh, three 45 minute to an hour long lectures. I think they're very helpful. Even though they're very technical, I think it's helpful to understand the context of the Old Testament because covenants play a large role in the Old Testament. All right. Um, I, again, I'll link to the PDF uh, of the notes. One of the important 
concepts that is a sort of an underlying theme connected with the covenants is the idea of God's kingdom. So what does that look like? What are different features of it? All of those sorts of things. And I don't know how well you can see this, but there's a pretty detailed diagram here on this page. And I'm not going to redraw that or try to explain all of it because I want to go into what it says about the Abrahamic covenant. It's not on your page, but um, I'll send you all a link that you can, you can pull up and look at that. Um, it's helpful just to see how all of it fits together from the diagram. Uh, essentially, there's this concept of a theocratic kingdom of God. Now, what's the difference between a theocratic kingdom and, like, the kingdom of England? What does theocratic mean? Right. Yeah, God's the one who's ruling, right? Yeah, so God's ruling as opposed to a human person. That being said there is a sense in which God had specific representatives through which his theocratic kingdom was mediated, we could say. So you think about David. David was God's representative on earth as the king of the kingdom that was recognized to ultimately be ruled by God. Today, uh, you know, the Queen of England doesn't necessarily say, well, she might say, but not accurately, I'm God's representative on earth as the ruler of England. Because there's very much a sense in which her rulership has become more of a, uh, she's more of a figurehead, head of state, than she is the one actually carrying out everything because they have parliament and all those other aspects of their government. But in the context of the kingdom of Israel, there were human kings but it was recognized that God was the one who was ultimately ruling them. This is illustrated, for example, in the fact that when the people reject Samuel in the time of the judges, what did God say? They're not rejecting you, ultimately, they're rejecting me. When the people turned away from David to follow after Absalom, that was seen as treason, not primarily against David, but against God, because David was the one that God had appointed to rule and reign. He was the anointed king. So just a quick background on that. All right, now we've arrived at the sheet you have in front of you. And I want us to specifically focus on the Abrahamic covenant, because that's the one that we're really talking about as we go through the book of Genesis. What types of covenants do we see in the Old Testament. Specifically, the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral grant. Remember, we said there's bilateral and there's unilateral. Bilateral is both people are contributing something. Unilateral is God is the one who's initiating and granting something to a servant, which doesn't mean that Abraham can do whatever he wants. It just means that God is the one that the, the blessings are flowing from. It's foretold in Genesis 12. We've already looked at that passage. And what were some of the things in Genesis 12? Turn there if you have your Bible with you. Genesis 12. What were some of the things that sort of set this covenant in motion? What were some of the things that God promises to Abraham? He will bless Abraham. Good. What else? Okay. 
What other things? Okay. Make you a great nation. Good. Make your name great. Okay. Mm -hmm. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Good. So we have several different ways the idea of blessing is stated, positively, negatively, him personally, and through his descendants there would be blessing. This idea of a great nation. Doesn't mention the land, incidentally, in these first three verses, but in verse 7, what does he promise him once he's actually in Canaan? No. Yeah, I give the land to your descendants. Okay, good. So, it's foretold here in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 15, we're going to look at next Sunday, but if you look specifically at verse 18 of Genesis 15, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So that's the first time that we actually see that phrase covenant used, that word covenant used. Up until that point, it's been a series of promises that God had made, but it was not a formal covenant until Genesis 15. Why did God make the covenant with Abram? Look at letter A there. He's establishing a covenant people and property. Both the family that he was specifically going to set aside as his people and the place that was going to be their home. What are some of the benefits of the covenant for Abraham and his descendants? We already talked about this idea of a great name and a great nation. There's a notable national identity through Isaac. In Genesis 12:2, it's, I will make you a great nation. When we come to Genesis 18 and verse 18, Abram will surely become a great and mighty nation. Secondly, we have this idea of blessedness and blessing. We already saw that in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Uh, we're going to see it again in Genesis 22, verse 17. I'll just read that for you. It says, I will greatly bless you. I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. The sand on the seashore, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. He's going to be a seed of blessing for all clans of the earth. See that in Genesis 12, verse 3. And then all nations of the earth, Genesis 18 and Genesis 22. So there is also the idea of a land. And the boundaries of it are described as we continue through here. Um, Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Go from where you live now. And then Genesis 12, verse 7, I will give this land, the land of Canaan, that he can see. Uh, chapter 15 and verse 18, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Let's think about that geographically for a minute, because that's important. All right, bear with my map making skills. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's the Nile River, right? Here's the river Euphrates, clear over here. And we tend to think of Israel as you know, here's the Dead Sea and the um, Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. We tend to think of Israel as being kind of like this space, right? I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? God's saying all of this is Israel's territory. Have they ever possessed that? 
No, even in the days of Solomon, the greatest king of Israel, I don't think they really came close to at least extending to the eastward boundary of that. Um, I was just looking here and uh, trying to remember as we look through the kingdoms of David and Solomon. So, Solomon, Solomon's kingdom extended down to the Gulf of Aqaba and westward to what that was called the Wadi of Egypt. But he didn't have the whole Sinai Peninsula. It didn't go as far westward as the Nile River. It didn't go as far eastward as the Euphrates, other than in the sense that he kind of had the northward part of the kingdom under control. And I'm going to have to correct my map. This is not the Euphrates. The Euphrates actually goes more like this. Solomon kind of had this part of the territory under his control for a brief period of time, but it wasn't formally part of his kingdom. And certainly it wasn't this whole region to the extent that is described there. So that's important to keep in mind as we continue through looking at this idea of covenant. So, we've got this idea of land. Uh, it's described as an everlasting possession. It's mentioned in, read for you, Genesis 24 and verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there when Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for his son. Some of these promises are repeated to Isaac, sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your descendants I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Uh, and then it is continued, for example, in the book of Exodus. It's spoken to Moses. Exodus 32 and verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. That's Moses' prayer interceding for the Israelites when God said, you know what? I could wipe them all out and start a new nation with you. And, and Moses said, you know what? You've already made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And part of it is this aspect of the land that you've promised to them. And so it says God turns away from his anger and, and uh, in light of Moses' intercession for the people. We also have the idea of great reward. Um, when you're teaching kids, what sort of things do you do to motivate them to do stuff? Like what? A prize, stickers, piece of candy, whatever. Sometimes we feel badly about that, like any kind of reward is inappropriate. But in the case of Abraham, God is rewarding him appropriately. It says in Genesis 15 and verse 2, or Genesis 15 and verse 1, God says, your reward shall be very great. Reward for what? Obedience, which is a sign of faith. 
And that makes us nervous because when we hear faith and we hear reward, we think good works getting us into heaven apart from Jesus. But that's not what's going on here. It's rather genuine faith produces obedience and God blesses in light of that. Ultimately, obviously, God gets the credit because he's the one that started the whole process and sustains it, right? But from a human perspective, there is obedience that leads to reward. There's a parallel, I think, in the sense that eternal life is described as a reward for obedient faith. But not ultimately, it's not a reward in the sense of, I do good stuff, then God forgives me, then God gives me eternal life. It's God creates faith in him, I turn from my sin and repent, I start to live a life in obedience to God. The end result of that life is eternal life in God's presence forever. And the initial aspect of eternal life, which is knowing Christ throughout the course of our lives, right? And so there's a parallel there in this idea of reward. Not only is it generally this idea of uh, him being a seed of blessing, but, but in you, in what sense, in his specific heir... Isaac, Genesis 15 and verse 4, a servant of yours is not going to be your heir, but rather a child of your body will be your heir, Genesis 15 and verse 4. And it's revealed as we go through in chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 21, that this refers to Isaac. Because there's a question, because who comes up between when God makes this promise and Ishmael, right? Is Ishmael the heir of promise? No, because God had said it's going to be you, Abraham, and it's going to be your wife, Sarai. It's made clear as time goes on that that's the case. Then we have this idea of many descendants. So, according to your generation, you will father many nations. There's a lot of references there. We're not going to go into all of them. Then there's the idea of kings and princes. Genesis 17 and verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Which raises a question for us. When the people of Israel asked for a king, were they acting according to God's will or not? They were not, because was it God's plan to give them a king? Yeah, because he had said that to Abram. But... Was the way that they went about it the proper way? No, they wanted a king because they didn't want to follow the one that God had already appointed to rule over them, Samuel the judge. But it was part of God's plan all along that they would be ruled by kings. Right. But even, even David and the other good kings, I think, are forerunners of Christ in that sense. So. But yes, ultimately pointing to Christ. And then the last thing there, possession of their enemies. Uh, this idea of defeat of enemies, which kind of ties in with, I will curse those who curse you. So, when we say, what are the parts of the Abrahamic covenant? We tend to sort of sum it up and say, land, seed, and blessing. But there's a lot more things going on here, as you can see from this list of nine different things. And there's some overlap between them. You could group some of them together and get it down to five or six things. But there's a lot that goes in to the Abrahamic covenant. All right, what are the complements of the covenant? What are the things that go along with it and mark it off? 
There's this idea of sacrifice. This is on your next page. If you flip it over. Um, sacrifice. Genesis 15, we see God making that sacrifice. And then there is a token or an obligation. What was the sign of the covenant if Abraham was following it? It was circumcision. Now, um, this seems strange to us in a lot of ways. However, um, it's important to understand this concept because it ties into a lot of the things that the prophets will later say that tie into some of the things that Christ says that tie into the gospel. And it's in this sense, God said, you will bear in your body a mark, at least to the men of Israel, that shows that you are set apart to me. But that outward sign does you no good as far as you're standing before me if your heart is not obedient to me. And that was the ongoing conflict for the people of Israel. Outwardly, they were God's people. By birth, they were the nation of God. In their hearts, many times, they had no desire to follow Him. That'll become important as we look in just a moment here at this uh, section D here. What are the... Who are the beneficiaries of the covenant? First of all, Abraham and all physical descendants by natural birth via Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, Abraham and all spiritual descendants by faith via Christ. How many of you sing the kids' song, Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them? Okay. Is that true in an ethnic sense? No. Unless some of you have Jewish background, I don't know about it. It's not true. Is it true in a spiritual sense? Galatians would say, yes, we are heirs of Abraham if we have the same kind of faith. So let's look at that briefly. Who is connected with Abraham? Turn over to Romans chapter 4. It doesn't really go into the point of... Uh, physical descendants of Abraham being heirs of Abraham because that's kind of a given. But let's see if there is biblical support for the idea that spiritual descendants of Abraham are heirs as well. Alright, someone want to read Romans 4 verses 10 through 18? Uh, verse 18.
Okay, so in what sense is Abraham heir of the world? Well, let's say, first of all, how did it come about? Did it come about because Abraham was under the law of Moses? No, because obviously that came later. Did it come about because Abraham was circumcised? No, because God made the promises before that. It came about because God said, I'm going to do this for you, and Abraham believed God. It's interesting when we think of Abraham being the father of many nations, there is a practical sense in which the peoples of Israel and the people of Ishmael did become a great multitude of people. That being said, it does raise the question for us, and I don't have a full explanation of this. It's something I'm thinking about, and I think we should all think about. Is there a sense in which Abraham, being father of many nations, is also connected to those from many nations who trust in Christ with the same kind of faith as Abraham? So that's something for us to think about. Um, uh, so first of all, all peoples of faith, and then specifically, all redeemed through Abraham's seed, that is Christ. The Jews were first, think about the progression in the book of Acts. God gives the gospel to the Jews, they believe, some of them, then it goes to the Samaritans, and then it goes to the Gentiles. So there is a sense in which in your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed is fulfilled in Christ, right? And then specifically there's a bunch of things in Galatians chapter 3, so let's turn over there. Uh, Margaret, can you read 3, 7 to 9 for us? Galatians 3, 7 to 9. So those who are faith of faith who are sons of Abraham. This, I think, is the point that Christ makes in John 8, right? The Jews say, you don't know who your father was. We are sons of Abraham. Jesus makes the point that I'm God from eternity. I am. And so he is superior to Abraham. And even more importantly, the question was not, were they ethnically descendants of Abraham, it was the question of were they having the same kind of faith that Abraham did? Because if they didn't have the same kind of faith as Abraham, it didn't matter if they were, you know, a grandson of Isaac, even though they were much further down the line than that. Didn't matter because they didn't have the same kind of faith, and that was the thing that marked off those that God was going to bless in connection with Abraham. 
Um, Evan, can you read those other verses there, 14, 16, and so forth? Notice the verse right before, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That does not mean that those distinctions are erased. It means that for purposes of our standing before God, distinguishing characteristic is not ethnicity or social status or gender. The distinguishing thing that sets us apart as those who have faith like Abraham is are we believing in Jesus Christ and then we are, in that sense, truly Abraham's descendants and those who are blessed according to God's promises. Um, so the chart that you have there that... Let me erase this. The one that looks like this, you have Abraham. And then you have Isaac and Jacob. And then over here you have Christ. And then from there we have these two circles. And these are the ones who are the physical descendants. These are the ones who are the spiritual descendants. These are the ones who are actually God's people in this part where they overlap. When Paul says in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. That's what he means. Those who are born Jews are not truly God's people unless they also believed in Christ. We who are not of Jewish background are not participating in the blessings that God had promised unless we also believe in Christ. Um, so what does all this mean? God intended for many people to take of the same, partake of the same faith as Abraham and thus descend from him as sons of faith. Secondly, the object of the faith by which the spiritual covenant blessing comes is Christ, one of the physical descendants of Abraham. What this does not mean, all of Abraham's ethnic descendants are or become believers. All of Abraham's spiritual descendants are or become Jews. So, let me clarify, because I think I was maybe not speaking clearly. Only those who are both descendants of Abraham physically and trusting in Christ spiritually are Jewish people who are participating in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We participate in those things 
only as spiritual descendants, not as physical descendants. That's what that phrase was just saying. Thirdly, it does not mean that the Abrahamic covenant blurs or melds ethnic and spiritual distinctions. There's a sense in which we walk into the church body and it doesn't matter what your background is in terms of your standing before Christ. There's another sense in which those things are very real and create conflict like we saw in James 2. And so there, there's, we have to be aware of those things and biblically responding to those things while recognizing that all of those things do not determine our standing before God. Fourthly, that those who experience some legal benefits partake of all legal benefits, and perhaps most importantly, number five, that God has typologically or otherwise transferred to others and modified significantly all or any of the benefits sworn to Abraham. Let me explain that last one. Um, Kelly and I were talking about the word dispensationalism yesterday, and uh, the important thing is not that we follow, assign to ourselves a particular label and say, these are all the things that I believe. The important thing is, do we understand what Scripture says, and can we explain that accurately? But, here's an important distinction connected with all of what we're saying with regard to the relationship between the church and Israel. There are some people who say, God said to Israel, land, seed, blessing. God has then transferred those things to the church, the land becomes heaven. The seed becomes possibly the existence of the church. I'd have to look that one up. And the blessing becomes salvation. And Israel, forget about them, they miss their chance. They wouldn't come out and say it quite that definitively, typically. But what are the issues if we assume that to be the case. What are some of the issues that that creates? Okay. Yeah. And the workaround that some people say is, well, it was a conditional covenant, and so Abraham, uh, the Israelites didn't meet the conditions, so they're out. Right. Right. So, the Abrahamic covenant, if it is a unilateral covenant, God grants certain things to Israel. Yes, they were supposed to have the mark of circumcision. Yes, they were supposed to continue to follow God in faith. But that didn't mean that if at any point they wavered in those things, they were automatically and forever out. In this sense, think about Abraham's own life. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, okay, maybe that means I need to make this happen by human means. So he has Ishmael. God says, no, that's not the right way. I'm going to give you a son. Did Abraham's faith waver at some point in there? Yes, because he tried to come up with his own solution. Did that mean that the covenant was over and done with? No, because God continues to renew it with Abraham. Now, there is a sense, and you don't have this in front of you right now, in which the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral or suzerainty treaty. But the reason that that no longer applies today is not primarily because the Israelites didn't follow it, but because Christ has fulfilled it and Christ has come, right? And so the reason the Mosaic Covenant is done away with or fulfilled is because of Christ, not because of Israel's unfaithfulness. So, one of the issues is it says God breaks the covenant. What's another thing? If God says, 
I make a promise to this set of people, and it means this here. And then we come over here, and now it's to a different set of people and a different set of conditions. What does that imply about how we can understand God's Word? It's changed. It's a different thing. We're kind of right. It seems kind of fickle or unpredictable, right? And so the issue with saying something like this is that it undermines our understanding of God's character. It undermines the approach by which we interpret Scripture. And it basically means God's broken His covenant and He's not going to keep His promises to Israel, which is like the bulk of the Old Testament, is the promises God made to Israel and how He's carrying them out. And so, while it may not seem like a big deal to say, well, the church has replaced Israel, it has a lot of implications that we should think carefully about. So, a lot of technical stuff this morning, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that to think through carefully. I just wanted us, in light of the fact that we're going to go into Genesis 15 next week, and in light of the fact that um, we looked at Genesis 12, and in light of the fact that we're going through the church covenant, it's helpful for us to think through all these things. So real quick as we wrap up, if features of a covenant are bilateral versus unilateral, um, is the covenant before God a church covenant? Or is it primarily toward one another? I mean, there's, there's the sense in which any promise we make is in God's sight and we should take it seriously. But is a church covenant designed primarily to be between God and the church or to be between members of the church what they're committed to do? Between members of the church. So at least at that point, it's not the same as the covenant that we're talking about here. Are there symbolic elements of a church covenant? I mean, I suppose we could say if we recited it together, that could be a symbolic element, but it doesn't correspond to sacrifice, meal, or token in the things we talked about being features of these covenants. And then lastly, is there an oath that sets it in place? Are you swearing an oath at some point that you will follow the church covenant? I think we would have to say no. There's a sense of agreement or obligation, but I don't think it rises to the level of an oath, and I'm hesitant to say that it should. So, in light of all those things, as we continue our discussion of what's traditionally been understood as the church covenant, I think we need to look at it in light of the differences from a covenant scripturally and say, Instead, what we're doing is a series of promises or commitments to one another to help us to remember in summary form what the Bible already tells us to do. In the same way that the statement of faith is a summary of truth that already exists in Scripture, and we are having sort of a, a shorthand form of remembering all those truths, the church commitments or promises are us thinking through what we're supposed to do as a church and regularly being reminded of our responsibilities. 
if at any point we see the statement of faith or the church responsibilities, promises, commitments as being more important than what's actually in Scripture, we should set them aside. Because all it is is a tool to help us do what Scripture already says we should believe and act out what Scripture already says we ought to, how we ought to behave toward one another. So all that to, to kind of help put all those things in perspective. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray that you would bless the church service to follow. Thank you for these amazing truths that can be difficult to understand, but that are important for us to think through. Lord, help us to understand them better, to know who you are and your faithfulness in so many ways, despite the fact that we are not always faithful, the fact that you keep your promises and we can trust you and what that means in terms of how we live our daily lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.